Welcome back to Aotearoa Unearthed, Archaeology for Everyone. My name is Rosemary Baird and this week for our second episode, I'm thrilled to be talking to Makari Rika Heke. Makari is a colleague of mine, an amazing Māori archaeologist and heritage advisor in the Tamaki Makoro Auckland region. I met Makari a few years ago at a Women in Archaeology panel we ran and she just blew me away with her thoughtfulness on Indigenous archaeology in Aotearoa. So when I started this podcast, I knew I really wanted to talk to her. Today I'm going to ask Makari about how she views an archaeological landscape through a Māori cultural lens and about how tikanga informs her practice and also about her dreams for Indigenous archaeology in New Zealand. Welcome Makari and thanks so much for talking to me today via Zoom. Makari, can you describe what you mean when you talk about viewing an archaeological landscape through Māori eyes? So when I talk about landscape or whenua uh, through a Māori lens, it's kind of informed by our cultural narratives, partly history, but partly looking at it from the view that there are many footsteps across the landscape that have left their imprint, tikanga that has inscribed the landscape. So literally how our behaviour then manifests in the landscape. We tend to walk through our modern scapes and see them in one dimension, which is it's a landform, it's got things on it. If you take it from a Māori lens, it's like walking through a time loop. Past, present, future, all in one. When you walk through the landscape, you're looking for, but not only looking for, but you're feeling for with all your senses. It's what you can see and read and take in with your eyes, what you feel um, within yourself, how that makes you feel, how you as a person respond to that whenua and that landscape. And it's not only just Māori, it's all human beings. For Māori walking through a landscape, you are looking for these um, waypoints and markers. Whenever you get someone from Te Ao Māori, um, they will introduce themselves using pipiha. Pipiha and whakatauki are ways of um, reconnecting with landscape. It's a social memory, a cultural memory. So all these points that are anchored within the landscape, that's what I mean by reading. And there are non-Māori who are very adept at reading these waypoints and tapping into that. It's just sometimes it takes, you know, us longer to reconnect with that style of doing things. Can you give me an example of, say you went to a place, what kind of things would you be tasting or smelling or seeing that would give you that connection? Okay, so I'm going to just um, take one exemplar. So if you stood at Mirimiri, what you would automatically see is an imposing landform, flat spaces, ditches. Now, if you filtered out all the modern housing, you would then see the waypoints of the Tupuna Awa, the Waikato River, that would lend your thoughts to all sorts of things, transport, um, but also lifeways. The briny smell of the water at times, um, to really put you in there, you would smell the different um, types of vegetation because they all smell different. You'd hear the way the wind moves. You would feel the way the wind moves. Then you'd be looking for where the other sources of water are coming from, where the punawai might be by looking at all the greenery, where it's most green, there's water. You would look for the rock forms. Rock forms are a form of conduit. So different elements allow us to commune with not only different gods, but different work modes. So a rock formation might mean that there's a, a tuahu or an altar there to whomever God presides over that resource, but also it means that this is an exchangeable commodity. You literally see the tricks of your ancestors and your immediate thoughts are, okay, where did they live? Where did they enter? Where did they exit? 
Where did they grow things? How are they sustaining themselves in this landscape? Who are they trading with? And how are they seeing incoming people, visitors? Because visitors also mean, you know, you either welcome them or repel them. All these interconnections when you think about what's in the landscape, what whenua actually means in terms of human survival and how your society developed. Gosh, Marker, it just seems to me like you must have to have so much knowledge, I guess, to be able to pick up on all these very subtle clues. Like, how do you get all that knowledge? People tend to think that, but I think when people are quite still within themselves and are able to think free of modern encumbrances, just think about what it is to respond as a human being and survive. I think they will find that they all have this particular skill because it's definitely not an academic thing. I think it's a human thing. And you can see this. You take someone camping or to a situation where they have to work in teams in remote areas and you can actually see people revert because you strip away all the modern masks and the things we rely on. And then you have the real person. Then you have the reality of what their ancestral DNA and their ancestral experience has prepared this person for. It's not what comes to mind when you think of archaeology. It's a bit an ability to re-enter past human behaviour and to imagine yourself into the way they would have seen the landscape. Oh, it's just amazing. Yeah, I love it. It's like being in a time machine. What I love about archaeology, it helps me reconnect with my ancestral footprint. I love reconnecting with my tūpuna, always have. But what I love about archaeology is that it allows each and every one of us to tap into that time portal. It can transport you back to the past I love the challenge that it represents because the way our modern brains will think of something is entirely at odds with how it was, you know, back in the day. To be honest, our ancestors were far more pragmatic about things. Survival at all costs, protect your whakapapa, and to pass on your knowledge, secure your succession plan, essentially, otherwise you're a dad. If you drill down to it, you can actually see the way people are thinking by looking at the whenua, what they did, by looking at taonga. You actually get into their mindset. Yeah, I mean, it makes you think, doesn't it, that every element you find, that's all the result of a decision that they made. And so you're right, there is like a connection between the thing and the mindset. And it is. And and things like stone tool, if you think about all what that encompasses, it actually represents interrelationships and connection because it takes a lot of connections and a lot of nows to get something from one end of the country up to the next and to have cordial relationships that allow that free flow. And that means people have invested in relationships. That's what I like. The whenua and artifacts in archaeology. They tell us and teach us about complex relationships. Mm. So excuse my appalling ignorance, but did that happen a lot in Aotearoa, that resources from one part of the country moved around? Is that quite common? Oh, exceedingly common. Look at the archaeology. You've got some sites that you can see harvesting and processing of foodstuffs and of materials on an industrial scale. I mean, you've got reports of the hauraki, of tons and tons, flotillas of thousands of waka going out in one day and bringing back bulk fish and shark and then setting up processing areas and then exporting to tamaki. If you look at um, the reach and where of a ponami is found, Ponamu coming from Te Wai Ponamu, down in Hukatika and Aruhura and other places that find its way to the far north. Or Tahanga basalt, which is found everywhere. Mare Island, Tuhua um, obsidian that's found everywhere. You look at 
the export and what that takes. That's a huge feat. That means there's coordination. It means that there are levies at Tauranga Waka and portaging. It means that those rangatira are moderating incoming, outcoming. So think about it, um, each pass site as being a main freight depot. So do you have an example of a um, particular site that you've worked on where looking at it through this lens where you really tap into that whenua and the, the people's mindset of the past where you got a different outcome to perhaps if you'd just had a more European scientific approach? Uh, there's, there's several, um, but one that really sticks in my mind is, it, and it takes me back to when I was a student, that was my very, very first archaeological site, is Bishop Pompilia's mission station. Now this is with, was in Purako, well it's in the Hokianga, but not far from Rangi Point, Rawini. And I actually have Whakapapa links up there. One of my cousins had married into the family and they were the landholders. But what that got me thinking about was it was quite confronting because on one hand, it's the mission station and you think, well, you know, the church brothers, very Catholic, and you have all these preconceptions. When we looked at some of the archaeology, it's quite comical because we tend to think of church brothers as untouchable and holy. And what came out of it was there was a lot of alcohol, (laughs) wine bottles, bottles all sorts some brothers like alcohol a little bit too much the sacrament was a little bit too much for them what it showed me is that there is actually a microcosm where Māori meet non-Māori it was Catholic church brothers adapting to the environment which is a Māori environment incorporating Māori horticultural technology and then Māori who were already living there adapting to Pākehā technology and you can see this pastiche of sites that come up because you can discern different types of archaeological signatures so you would see where they've obviously taken their normal way of functioning and thought actually if I incorporate this it's a little bit better more efficient you can see how they've shaped their their middens and their pits to adapt basically contain some of the alcohol and to preserve it properly and you can see French and some Cornish ways of lining and of agricultural practice creeping into some of the pits it told us they weren't beige missionaries they were intrepid adventurers who were scientists reacting to a foreign land testing things um, and trying to get on with the business of life you can see this happening with money as well the practice of offering changing the adaptation of so moving away from monetary to an agricultural offering you see money offering bits and pieces on site from stone tools to little medallions or buttons is is offerings. And that's what I mean. When you see the subtleties, the reading becomes better. And it almost sounds as well like it's such a complex story of these two cultures meeting and they're sharing and learning from each other. There is. And we tend to polarise things because it's just easier to process. There's a goodie, there's a baddie. But actually, you know, past is grey it's not always black and white and the past is colourful and I love the salaciousness that can be gleaned from some of the archaeology you can see this in some of the historic building constructions like some of the buildings with secret corridors and secret tunnels so that founding fathers could visit their mistresses I mean you can look at ship logs if you're looking at shipwrecks and seeing what people were smuggling, who was running arms and who was a musket dealer but pretending to be on a scientific expedition for plant material. When you read between the lines then it gets interesting and colourful. Just moving on, so as a Māori archaeologist when you go onto a site I'm just wondering 
in terms of tikanga, is there anything you do in terms of being safe and being respectful? If you could just share something about that. It's different for every Māori archaeologist and every other Māori who interacts with their own science. So for myself, pretty early on, there were a few self-protection measures and a few um, comfort level measures that I've always had. And that just comes from my default setting, um, given my whakapapa makeup. So one of them was the fact that I was never comfortable operating on whenua and in Arohe, where I didn't have any links to. Oddly enough, everywhere that I physically worked on as an archaeologist, it worked out that I have very, very close whānau links. It helps with my kind of whakapapa, of course. If I took it back to my grandparents, great-grandparents and beyond, I actually had a very solid, identifiable footprint there. But when I'm talking about going into on-site, so there's a certain amount of preparation. If it's an urupa, you might fast. And before you go there, you would clear it with haukainga, and they usually will have their own tikanga exponents to handle that. But you'll come prepared with your own karakia, come prepared with, this is the, the wrong word, but the only way I can convey it is your sacraments. So you would come with neutral water for cleansing, kohatu. Kohatu is an anchor, but it's also a conduit to other elements and other atua or gods that may be on site, and you would proceed very carefully. Now, you'd also take the time and effort to know about the kawa and the tikanga of any given area and what you could glean from any research. And by that, I mean sometimes there's a gender issue, so that would have to be clarified, whether it's male site, female site, or whether it was gender neutral. Sometimes modern convenience is not allowed within precincts. Some uruparan places don't allow females, so it requires an element of conservatism, but also an element of privacy. But then you would move within that landscape a certain way. So certain sites you will go to first. If there's an altar or tuahu or something of high spiritual value, you would pay your respects to that first and, and then work your way around site. And tikanga takes precedence. You will have a different strategic order in which you visited places and which blessings were undertaken. But you would take your cues both from the landscape and from those ahorangi or those learned people that um, versed in the tikanga of that site. There are caveats about eating on site. The general rule, no eating on site except for places where it's clearly stipulated it's kapai to eat here and when you exit there will be certain um, cleansing rituals that you do both on site as you leave but also your own personal tikanga so speaking plainly for a wahine you would make sure that the timing was right in terms of your cycles because there are competing elements of wairua also fasting or withholding food also allows you to pick up on signals that the whenua is giving. So it allows you to focus more on what's in the landscape and what you need to observe. I'm just thinking, Makari, surely there must be a lot of archaeologists who wouldn't know to do this. Is this kind of approach taught in, in universities or archaeology courses? It's not taught on the whole. Now, what I find is archaeologists are always a special kind of person in terms of profession. They are very good and adept at reading the landscape and reading, have their own set of skills, which I like, which is why I, I've gravitated towards it and like to augment it with my cultural expertise. Not all of them will be cognizant of this is exactly what they're doing and not all of them will be cognizant of this is what my kaitiaki monitors and what my reps are doing. Some of them um, might lack the experience to know that this is an actual thing. The courses that I've been involved with at universities and um, some of my other um, Māori archaeologist peers have been 
teaching this kind of windows of insight is what I call it. So the windows of insight that allow other people to enter our mindsets as to how we look at these things. And I know that some of them might go, oh, this is pie in the sky, airy fairy. But I would implore people to hit pause and just to think about it. So interesting. Thanks for sharing, Makari. We have a show and tell section where we try and talk about something very specific. And I know we uh, discussed talking about Rangiriri Pa, and you were going to explain about the cultural reclamation based on the archaeology. I'm not explaining it very well. Yes, Rangiriri is always one of these jewels that we talk about because it runs the gamut of engagement. So it was a cultural hub, it was a papakainga that was being transformed into a penultimate defence system during the invasion of the Waikato and the land wars, but also it's an engineering feat. So the Māori engineer, Tiaho Te Rangi Wharipu, was an extremely adept tactician along with other rangatira for that area, inclusive of Ngāti Nahua and Ngāti Mauta. Rangiriri is always one of those microcosms because it's now become a place of pilgrimage for both Māori and European. It's Tohumau Mahara, so it's a place of remembrance and has become so. Now, it took a number of years for the restoration to follow through. It's been a 30-year process. So fast forward, we get to 2014, Tohumau Mahara goes up thanks to the efforts of Hokainga, everyone that was involved in the commemorative committee, um, but also our Māori Built Heritage team, Dean Whiting and Jim Schuster, um, Dave Robson, who had listed the reserve as one of our listings for Heritage New Zealand Pohere Tonga. We were very mindful that the cultural footprint would be reinserted back into the landscape. And that was the thing that Mana Whenua and Hokainga had insisted upon. The archaeology in minute detail has been translated into what appears now on site. So if you had to go to visit Rangiriri site, the archaeology, those defences, those ditches has been translated accurately upon the landscape. So you look at the art forms there, they are true and correct. They're on mini scale but they are true and correct. So the plantings, the boxing, the footpaths, you will see a mini representation of what their defences actually look like. The installation that is there, that is the height of what those trenches were. It's not just pretty artwork. The landscape is designed to be red. Likewise, our carvings. Now for Kairor, look at the colour, look at the placement, look at the heights. Where is the view shaft taking you? All these places on site actually point you in a logical way. When you are reading the markers, you are transitioning into a wānanga experience. You are on a journey around the site and you are learning as you go whether you realise it or not. Wow. I've never been there, so I'll have to. (laughs) There's just so many layers of knowledge that... (laughs) I feel ignorant about. We have a digging deep section, which is where you talk about something in a bit more depth. I think what I wanted to ask you is if you could talk to me about your dream of what Māori archaeology could be in the future in Aotearoa. So I have very specific dreams, always have. It's always been my dream because I came through semi-alone. When I came through, there were very, very few Māori archaeologists when I came through, there were about four. As we've gone on, it's fluctuated to six. Then I saw it go to nine, then 12. Now we have more. But what I lack is Māori active in archaeology that can then turn their eye to teaching and to mentor. My dream would be to have a whole cadre of Māori archaeologists, Māori that can step in and out of both our worlds, 
What I would love to see is the browning of archaeology in this country because I think it's too beige. Straight up, I think you need to be more Māori archaeologists. I would like to see Māori on all sorts of boards and councils that govern archaeology. I'd love to see more scholarships that are archaeology focused. There are big iwi that have them, and yes, my iwi does, and that's because you know people like myself have constantly pushed and challenged for that to occur. We need courses that align Māori studies with archaeology, that have a Māori face. I would dearly love, and so would my colleagues, we have been desperately trying to get some institution to pick up a course that we've designed. I would love, and my colleagues would love to teach people how to do what we do, to give them the shortcut version of not making the same mistakes. They will undoubtedly surpass us. The next generation must always surpass the present. Well, that is a pretty awesome challenge, Marguerite, and hopefully someone will listen to this and get inspired. So just to end with, we've got a question from a kid, which is just how did you first get interested in archaeology? Oh, and I don't want to take it too deep for this. There's no way I can sugarcoat it. The way I got into it was looking at my nanny when she had to go to Taupiri and places like Rangiriri, and this is my Waikato grandparents, because my nanny and her family had been one of the families that had had their koiwi destroyed by the railway tracks being cut through and by the road being cut through. What many people don't know is Rangiriri was that bit of the road that State Highway 1 went through. It was actually the Rupa section. The lower reaches of where the train tracks go through Taupiri is where my family had their section. My nan's babies um, and her father, we don't know what happened to their koiwi. So when my nan used to go to these places, my nan used to cry and she had nowhere to go but walk up and down. That is why I got into it. Oh, so do you feel like it's made a difference, you going into this sort of, I guess, Pākehā field? And I, th- I think so, but what I would say to the person that asked that question is that I got into it because I love the past. I love archaeology and what it can tell us and the adventures that it takes you on. Oh, well, thank you so much, Marguerite, for just sharing your amazing insights and observations. And I just always love listening to you. I find it challenging but also inspiring. Yeah. I really love Marguerite's perspective of slowing down, using all our senses and imagination to really interrogate a landscape from the perspective of our ancestors. It's something we can all do wherever we are. Archaeology is a discipline with a European colonial heritage, so it's just fantastic how Markery is able to challenge assumptions about how archaeology should be conducted, but in a way that's so inclusive. Aotearoa Unearthed is a joint production by Heritage New Zealand, Pohiri Tonga and the New Zealand Archaeological Association. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe or recommend us to your like-minded friends. Next episode, I'm going to be talking to two archaeologists about their Southern Cemeteries project in Otago and Southland. So ka kite until then.